Thank you, Johnny. Good morning. I wonder how many of us came across the story of this woman on the news this week. This is Nazanin Zahira Ratcliffe, who in 2016 visited Iran. And while she was there, she was imprisoned, accused of crimes against the Iranian government. And then this week, this is what happened. She returned back to the UK to the embrace of her husband and her seven-year-old daughter. Her daughter, who was one when her mum was imprisoned, was standing on the tarmac, and as her mum was getting off the plane, she turned to her dad and said, Daddy, is that my mummy? The newsreader, when this story broke and was sharing it with everybody, began to cry on live TV. And then she began to scramble for words to explain why this story touches us so deeply. And it's because the story of a captive being liberated is profoundly powerful. It touches something deep inside every single one of us. And the reason is because it touches something of the fundamental human story. The story that we are all a part of, that every single one of us can relate to, because every single one of us can relate to, that every single one of us knows what it is to be enslaved to something and to long for liberation. And it isn't just this story that speaks this. One way of reading the Bible is to read it as one long story of liberation. And it is that story that we're going to take a look at today. We are in a series as Trinity looking at the cross because we are pursuing renewal. But we know that the only way to get to renewal is by looking at Jesus. And so this Lent, we are in a series looking at the cross. And Johnny launched us off a couple of weeks ago, basically unpacking that this cross is a strange cross. It is utter foolishness to those who think they can try and think their way through life by pure reason. And it is a stumbling block to the religious and to the self-righteous. But this cross defines us as Christians. It shapes everything that we do. And then Mark last week basically unpacked the fact that we need the cross because of sin. Sin is that all-pervasive, destructive force that twists, distorts, and ruins everything that is good. And it isn't just an external force. It's inside of us. Whenever we look at the world, or whenever we look at the mirror and think, oh my word, that is messed up, the reason is sin. That is the problem. That's what's going on beneath it all. And it isn't, um, oh, I've completely lost my place, family. Oh, thank you. It is not that it is just, it, it is, that's the story. That is the problem that's going on. Sin is what's going on beneath it all. So today, we are going to look at the story of Exodus. Because Exodus 
is our story of liberation. But some of you will ask the question, and it's a very good question to ask, but John, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's book number two. The cross doesn't feature till book number 40. Why are we looking at the Exodus? And the reason is this, because every story lays down patterns that are followed from the beginning all the way through to the end. If you want to understand the climax of any story, you need to know what's going on at the beginning. As Pat beautifully prayed last week, God is consistent with himself. He starts to interact with his people in a way and he sets a pattern by which we begin to understand what's going on at the cross. Because as Mark told us last week, we need the cross because of sin. But the question that it leaves us with is how does the cross deal with sin? And actually what we're going to look at today is how the cross deals with sin is by giving us a new exodus. And so, if we need to understand the story to understand the cross... It's story time. I am the father of a toddler. It's story time. In the beginning, God created a good world as a pure gift. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates humankind, male and female, to love and to rule over his creation. And then, as Mark said last week, seemingly from nowhere, sin enters the picture. And humankind finds itself in this downward spiral where things go from bad to worse to the absolutely awful. But God, who is committed to his creation, calls a couple called Abraham and Sarah and says, I will do a miracle through you. Even though it is impossible physically for you to have children, I will give you a son. And through that son, I will grow a nation. And that nation will become a blessing to the whole of humankind again. And so Abraham and Sarah, in the course of time, have a son. And they call him Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. And Jacob, who is renamed by God Israel, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where we land at the beginning of our first reading today. The names of the 12 sons of Jacob were the, were the names that we read out at the beginning. And these 12 sons go to Egypt. And they go to Egypt because of a legitimate need. There is famine in their land, but there is food in Egypt. So they go to Egypt. But in Egypt... They become enslaved, and the Egyptians work them ruthlessly, eventually subjecting them to torture and to genocide. Story pause. Isn't that such a powerful picture of how sin works in our lives? It distorts us at the level of our need. It takes what are God-given legitimate needs and we experience those needs not as a means of relationship with God. Those needs, actually, we experience that need as a lack. And then we go to something else that is not God to meet that need. And then over time, that thing that we keep going to that isn't God gets in us 
and it shapes us and it distorts us. Last week, Joe and I were, um, we were feeling a little bit under the weather. Levi wasn't sleeping great. We were a bit tired. And so Joe turned to me and she said, John, should we get a chippy tea? <laughs> In seven years of marriage, the answer to that question has always been yes. <laughs> So I go, I go out, I get in the car, I go to the chippy. Now, I'll be honest with you all, family. I, my, my digestive system does not do well with fats, like full stop. It just can't really handle them. So having a chippy tea is like pushing it for me. But I know that curry sauce is the worst thing I can have. It will make me ill. But as I am stood there ordering my fish and chips and that sweet, sweet woman dispenser of all wonderful things on the other side of the counter, reads out the extras. What do you want with your fish and chips, John? Do you want mushy peas, beans, gravy, or curry sauce? What do I say? Curry sauce. When I opened the carton, did it smell good? Yes, it did. When I ate it, did it smell good? Yes, it did. An hour later, was I bloated in pain and feeling very sorry for myself? Yes, I was. But it isn't just curry sauce, is it, that does this to us. There are so many things that we keep saying yes to that we know are bad for us. We know distort us. There are so many examples that we could go to here, but I'll pick just one. You and I were created by God to give and receive love. That means that you and I have a God-given and therefore legitimate need for intimacy. It is part of who we are. Every single one of us needs intimacy. But because of sin, we experience that intimacy, that need as a lack. And so we begin to replace it with other things. So instead of going to God, you might start going to humans and look for human affirmation. And suddenly, you are obsessed by the way that you look or you become a people pleaser. Or instead of going to God for your need for intimacy, you replace it with sex. And suddenly, I'm addicted to pleasure. Or you think, nah, I don't need intimacy. I've just got myself, thank you very much. And suddenly, you become inc incredibly self-obsessed and you are trapped in cycles of pride. The problem is, even if you realize that's going on for you, it's not as simple as just saying, well, I'm not going to be full of pride today. That completely addictive behavior that I've been doing for years, I'm not going to do that today. It just doesn't work that way, does it? So what can help us? Back to the story. For Israel, their enslavement was a literal, physical enslavement for 400 years. And if you have been tra trapped in a sin for a long time, take hope. You have not been trapped in it for 400 years. But even if you have, God has shown that he is able to deliver you and to liberate you from it. But what did the Israelites do? It says in our passage, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
Now, it's really important at this point that we don't accidentally read this passage really badly. And Fleming Rutledge, a writer, helps us out here. She says, this passage has sometimes been made to seem ridiculous, as though it meant that God had forgotten. The Israelites had just slipped his mind somehow, and now he has suddenly recalled them. Similarly, prayers asking God to remember have been misunderstood, as though God needed us to remind him of something that he might otherwise forget. That was never the meaning of remembering in the prayers of the church. Remembering in scripture refers to present action. If a woman prays to God to remember her mother, that does not mean, please think about my mother from time to time. It means, take action on behalf of my mother. It was not the case that God had this family and this people at the center of his plans for the entirety of humankind and then just fell asleep for 400 years. They were always in his sight. He always had his eyes on his people and the same is true of you. No matter how long or how secret or how deep the sin goes, God's eyes are on you. He sees you. You are not outside of his, uh, he is, you are not outside of what he is able to redeem. He is able to liberate you. In the place of slavery, the Israelites cried out and God acts. He reveals himself in a new way and he liberates them. And the way he does this is he tells the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb, a pure, spotless, unblemished lamb. Essentially, sacrifice the best and the most precious thing that you have, the purest thing that you have, and with the blood, paint your doorframe. Use the blood to paint the wooden doorframe of your houses. We're going to, in the coming weeks, dive a little bit deeper into what sacrifice means. But, in, but for now, focus on that image, blood on the wooden doorframe. Because Mark really helpfully un unpacked for us last week that, we just, that sin needs judgment. It is a good thing that God judges sin. But for those who have painted the doorframe of their houses... With the blood of the lamb, the sin, the, the judgment rather, the judgment does not enter. It literally passes over. And that doorframe becomes a door by which you can walk out. It is both that judgment does not land on you and you can walk out. And for the Egyptians, physically, that's what they did. They got up and they walked out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the promised land, after a bit of time. Hallelujah! But why does the story not end there? Because in reality, for the Israelites, their deliverance, their liberation was the beginning of a journey. Going back to the story of Nazanin, her husband said something really interesting 
when the journalists were interviewing him. And the journalists were kind of uh, asking him, you know, how did you feel? Your wife is coming home. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this amazing? And her husband said, well, in reality, this is the first of many arrivals. She is going to be coming back home for a long time because she is going to be learning now how to live as a free woman after six years of enslavement. And that is the same for what happened to the Israelites. So lots of different people have said this in different ways, but I love the way that Andy Croft and Mike Pilavachi put it. Getting Israel out of Egypt was the easy bit for God. Getting Egypt out of Israel took a lot longer. Despite the fact that God had rescued them, the Israelites spent most of their time moaning, fighting with each other, and wishing at times they could be in Egypt as slaves. They kept wishing for the old life, bad as it was, unable to realize the goodness of the life God had ahead of them. Sin is an internal force that enslaves not from the outside, but the inside. And what you see in the history of Israel is that time after time after time, they fail to live up to the standard of holiness that God sets for them. It's like they keep getting pulled back. It's like they take steps and then, whoa, they're back. They just can't help but be enslaved and behave enslaved. And it becomes really apparent that they need another liberator. They need another exodus. As our passage in Hebrews warns us, that original sacrifice, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't do the job. And at this point, you might say to me, well, John, I have never expected the blood of a bull or a goat to take away my sin. I'm quite all right, thank you. But don't we so easily fall into the trap of thinking that if I just moderate my externals, I'll be better on the inside. The Israelites walked out of their slavery and they got rich, they got famous, they got powerful, they got influential. They had more than enough for all their needs. And yet the whole thing collapses in on itself. Time after time after time. And we do just the same. Oh, I'll just go on another diet. I'll get another haircut. I'll get a new job. I'll change my friendships. I'll move cities. Ah, oh, new career, that'll do it. I'll, ch I'll, I'll tweak my behaviors. I'll get up half an hour earlier. That'll fix it. And it just doesn't, does it? Moderating the externals never changes the sin that's on the inside. We need a savior who is able to deal with the internal force of sin. And so the story of Israel continues on. And we are left, we read the Old Testament and we get to the end and we are left waiting. Who is it? 
who is going to come, who is going to liberate us, who is going to bring about this second exodus. And then Jesus. Jesus appears. And John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Literally, he's saying, Look, there he is. This is the one, the one we have been waiting for, the one we have been longing for, the one that we have needed from the beginning. This is the one. And Jesus on the cross, not on a doorframe, but on a wooden cross, paints the blood of a pure and spotless, sinless sacrifice. On that cross, he deals with every power of internal sin, guilt, shame, everything. And not only does that cross deal with the sin, it provides a second exodus. It deals with the stuff on the inside and it means you can walk out of it. Exodus literally means the way out. The cross becomes the way out of sin. Judgment passes over us and we walk out. And this is for all time. It is something that Jesus has already done. And if you know Jesus today, this is the reality that he has done for us. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has completely done it. You don't need to do anything more than walk to him. He leads us out. All that sin you can never deal with yourself, Jesus deals with. He is the one who deals with the judgment, and he is the one who walks you out. And I stand here completely changed by the power of that cross. I came to realize a couple of months ago that anger actually had a really strong influence in my life. I began to notice particularly with my little boy, Joshy. When he bless his little cotton socks, he just would not put his toys away. I began to notice that the levels of frustration and anger were so strong in me that I actually couldn't control my reaction. Anger had become a force in my life that I was enslaved to. And then during one day, I was, I was praying, and I felt God take me back into a pattern of behavior from my teenage years. And he took me back to a room that I would retreat to when things got tough. And it was basically a room that I went to to hide and to lick my wounds and to basically sort of meet my own needs. And in that room, what Jesus showed me is that I had made an agreement with anger because inside I was deeply angry that I had to go to that room at all in the first place. But as I was praying, God showed me this room and then he took down one of the walls. He literally smashed the wall. And on the other side was a huge open space full of gold. A Jesus with gold in his hands 
invited me out and he said, come, come, live in the big room. I have more than enough for you. And in this picture, I took his hand and I stepped out. And as I stepped out, he turned around with me and he closed the small room. It was like a blast door being pulled across. And I asked him, I said, God, I never want to go back there. And then it was like we walked so far into this room that I forgot the way back. There's an image in Narnia where they, they go so deep into Narnia that they forget the way home. And it was like God did that to me. He said, John, you'll never go back there. And guys, I do not experience anger in the same way. Do I get angry? Yes. Do I get frustrated? Yes. But it does not control me. I'm free. I can choose my reaction so that when Joshi doesn't put his blocks in his box for the 50th time, I can smile at him. I don't have to get angry. And I tell you this story because if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Whatever your version of that story is, if it's anger, then it's anger. If it's lust, then it's lust. If it's fear, then it's fear. Whatever it is, whatever your version of the small room is, there is a big room bought for you by the blood of Jesus that Jesus can walk you out into. And we walk into it through the cross.